Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for Mentors at Your Benchside in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. Thank you for downloading the webinars podcast from Bite Size Bio, the missing manual for bioscientists. The full version of this webinar can be viewed by navigating to bitesizebio.com slash webinars and clicking on the name of the sponsor, which can be found in the list on the right-hand side of the page. Hello all, this is Kristen Haberther welcoming you to this Bite Size Bio webinar, which today is sponsored by Genscript. Genscript is the leading DNA synthesis partner for basic life science research, providing laboratory reagents and services to scientists from over 100 countries. Genscript offers comprehensive CRISPR services, including synthetic CRISPR sgRNA, gRNA Cas9 plasmids, single-stranded DNA, purified Cas9 proteins, as well as cell line generation to help make your genome editing easy. Today's presentation is titled How to Use CRISPR to Accelerate Cancer Therapies and is being presented by Theo Roth, an MD-PhD student from the University of California, San Francisco, where he is currently working with Dr. Alexander Marson. Theo studied at Stanford and did research at the National Institutes of Health before coming to UCSF to further develop gene editing tools in human T-cells for cancer and autoimmune cell therapy applications. As always, we will have a question and answer session after the presentation, so please type any questions that you have into the questions box, which appears on the right-hand side of your screen, and I'll go ahead and put them to Theo at the end. The recording of the webinar is going to be available at http colon forward slash forward slash bit.ly forward slash t-cell underscore hdr reengineering, and I will have that link in our chat box section, which is also in your screen for GoToWebinar. Um, so now over to you, Theo, for the presentation. Thanks, uh, Kristen, and uh, thanks to the sponsors of the webinar, GenScript, for having me on today. Um, my name is Theo Roth. Uh, uh, like I said, I'm an MD-PhD student at UCSF. And today we'll talk a little bit about uh, some of our work developing uh, new methodologies to engineer human T cells with the the end goal of developing new uh, cancer therapeutics, but also a little bit more generally about um, the uh, the general types of uh, the, and methodologies that are available to you know the, the broader field right now as to the ways to do targeted gene modifications, uh, especially with a focus on therapeutic modifications of T cells, and focusing a little bit on the nature and type of DNA templates used to deliver that new genetic information into the cells. So let's just go ahead and get started. And um, the, uh, the magic of these systems is that we can, you know, we can edit the genome at, with a power and simplicity uh, and a speed that was never available to the pioneers of, of gene and cell therapies over the past 20 or 30 years. Uh, so as a, you know, as a, Quick background, 
a, a targeted nuclease system of which CRISPR-Cas9 is the most widely used. It is a made up of two components, a DNA nuclease that is targetable, um, wherein it can, it can cut cut a target sequence of DNA, but the target sequence that it actually cuts is is determined by an RNA component, which allows for rapid retargeting of that that protein nuclease. Um, is yeah, I could can certainly attest from the doing exper you know running experiments in the lab that this has just changed just about everything. Um, in the nature of how we can design uh, and test experiments around gene editing, and has this really been the you know the the, the media hype is not overdone. This is the uh, you know breakthrough that is enabling uh, the next generation of of cellular therapeutics. So the um, these two components are combined together into a functional particle that we call an RNP or ribonucleoprotein. Um, and this the this functional particle now just needs the um, a couple things. It needs to get into the cell, um, and you know, uh, if we actually, if we now are seeing evidence of, of gene modification, then we just need to figure out well, what's the best way to um, to formulate these? What are the best reagents for our specific applications? So on the first side, um, you know, the delivery question of how you get these editing reagents into the cell. Um, the my lab or our lab is is um, pretty set on using uh, DNA ele uh, electroporation, which allows for delivery of large bi biologic macromolecules for, through a fairly simple process. But there's certainly other, there's a variety of other uh, methodologies that may make sense for a given application, um, especially working on the research side in cell lines, delivering DNA components and coding these editing reagents and just getting the cell to express them is a, a you know, what's probably the most most common approach um but uh i think especially for uh the group the research and corporate groups that work with primary cells uh, there's a there's a fairly uh strong consensus that of uh, electroporation based delivery of recombinantly produced uh, protein and, and RNA components into the cell is the, the most efficient and simplest um, and kind of the, 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 the methodology that I think the uh, field is coalescing around. Um, and so, uh, you know, the, the t structure of the talk today that I'm, I'm, I'm gonna discuss this is, is gonna be essentially primarily is all using delivery of recombinantly produced protein and guide RNA into the cell by electroporation. Um, so once you've settled on a delivery platform that works best um, for your given system, it's just a matter of choosing what's the best quality uh, editing reagents. So that can be different types of nucleases. Again, Cas9 is the most common one, but there certainly now are a, a litany of other uh, nucle targetable nucleases that have different PAM spe specificities, have different fidelities now. We're going through the same process with nucleases that we did with polymerases over the past 20 years. You'll see the high fidelities come out and then the super high fidelities and on and on and on. Um, the type of the guide RNA and the uh, you know the sequence of that is obviously quite important. Um, but choosing the right, the, if you have options of which of multiple guide RNAs to choose, choosing the one that has the highest on-target specificity versus off-target effects, the stability of that RNA through various RNA modifications, um, 
And then the the uh, I'm not going to talk so much about about those two. They're they're well worn topics in the literature. I think the 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 area that uh, I'll we'll comment on a little bit today is the nature and type of a DNA template that is used during the editing process in order to insert in new pieces of genetic material. Uh, and we'll talk about a few different types um, and uh, go over kind of the, the benefits and drawbacks of, of different ones. So, um, so with that, the kind of the outline of the way that we edit T cells in, in our lab is uh, isolating and stimulating primary human T cells from healthy donors. Uh, the Cas9 protein and guide RNA are both recombinantly produced. We complex these together, just very uh, a brief uh, incubation will form a functional complex. And then, you know, by adding in you know, electricity or putting these together in a well, we can uh, end up uh, with a very quick uh, process. You press a button, it electroporates, and then you're done. Um, you can get um, a, a, a heterogeneous population of cells with a variety of, of gene modifications. You know, our goal for all of this is always to get, you know, 100% knockout of our target gene. But I can say that, you know, you never, uh, you never get 100%, but we can certainly get, at least in our optimized primary human T cell system, uh, well over 90, 95, 98, 99% knockouts, depending on the target site. Um, and you can say from adapting the system into a variety of other cell types, this electroporation-based approach of RNPs can be very, very efficient across cell types and fairly quick to actually to optimize for new cell lines or new primary cell types as well. So just to show some example data, um, you know, our one of our favorite uh, target genes is CXCR4. It's a um, HIV co-receptor on the surface of T cells. We can, you know, this is just some surface staining here, showing you that. At least at the protein level, there's close to 99%, uh, if not higher, uh, knockout of this protein. Now, um, primary T cells might not be the only thing that you're interested in, although that certainly is the focus for uh, cancer immunotherapies right now. Um, but this, just a, a brief example of how this RNP-based uh, approach. Uh, based on electroporation is is widely adaptable. We've also developed a uh, um, a you know simple analogous version of that protocol for primary human B cells as well, and we can also generate um, high quality knockouts. Um, uh, as you see on the right here, um, knocking out um, what an FC receptor on the surface. So uh, um, you know this is just one of many cell types that we've done these knockouts in, and you can find in in the uh, published now just about any primary cell type and you know, again just about any cell line has probably uh, there's published uh, protocols for RNP electroporations and certainly uh, many of those are ex exceptionally high uh, high uh, uh, knockout percentages now uh, Knockouts, though, are only are are an exceptionally powerful and new tool uh, on the research side, but there and and also the first uh, um, clinical trial, at least in the U.S., uh, focused on uh, CRISPR-Cas9 editing, uh, being run out of UPenn right now, is is focused on knockouts of a few target genes in um, uh, CD19 CAR T cells that might have therapeutic benefit. Um, now, the, the, but there's only one. There's only so many genes that you can knock out, and two, we can only expect that knockout of so many different things in the genome is going to have therapeutic effect. Um, 
much more power comes from being able to not just delete something uh, from the genome or, or uh, remove a pathway, but actually to go in and edit individual sites and insert new DNA at specific target sites such that now you have control over some of the programs that T cells are using um, or, or any other cell type. Um, and then you, you can design a new therapeutic function or new therapeutic program as opposed to hoping that knockout of any given uh, gene is going to have the, your desired therapeutic effect. So thankfully inserting DNA um, using this electroporation and RNP, uh, CRISPR-Cas9 RNPs is actually quite straightforward. It just means that we have to include a DNA template in our electroporation uh, um, when at the same time as we electroporate the, the cells in the RNP. Um, so inclusion of a DNA template, uh, and we'll talk about the design of those in a second, um, but that means that now out of our, in our bulk edited population at the end, now we have some cells that are gonna be knockouts, uh, primarily through the NHEJ or non-homologous end joining pathway. Some cells that will be knock-ins that will have the DNA template inserted at the target site and then still unedited cells. And of course, um, as long as you're editing at an autosomal locus, you'll have every combination of these in cells, uh, in individual cells, two alleles. Um, but if, if, especially if the insertion that you put in is something that you can see is selectable for, sortable for, now we can actually uh, find the cells that have a desired insertion. And so just quickly running through, I mean, a lot of the applications of this kind of, these kind of approaches um, go without saying, but um, for knockouts, uh, at least in our lab, we kind of focus on this, on uh, new, new discovery approaches for fundamental biology um, in, in healthy cells, and then also in, in diseased patient cells, potentially modifiers of, of the, that disease or phenotype. When we can add in knock-ins, though, especially if the um, kind of the current uh, uh, most commonly applied knock-in approach using very small, short, uh, single-stranded DNA, or also termed SSODNs uh, for single-stranded oligonucleotide donors uh, or donor nucleotides, now you can go in and insert small pieces of DNA, and that may be um, for uh, uh, diagnostic purposes, again, in the lab, um, in healthy donor cells, being able to insert a new a, a SNP or a mutation or a variant of unknown significance at a specific site and testing its functionality, or in diseased patient cells that could be going in and actually correcting an individual mutation. Uh, but from a therapeutic side, though, uh, we'd like to be able to insert much larger pieces of DNA, and that, that moves our, our capability from just correcting mutations up to rewriting uh, the actual genome and, and putting in new therapeutic functionality. And so a couple ways that have been done, uh, the, most the most common large knock-ins that have been published now by a variety of, of groups involve adeno integrase-deficient adeno-associated viruses that use, that encode in homology-directed repair template within their, gen within their genome. Um, but I'll show today data today that says that that viral step is not 100% um, not necessary and that you can use um, either single-stranded or double-stranded non-viral DNA um, to also accomplish these similar knock-ins, potentially with a, a higher speed, lower cost. Um, and so, and then this can be used for therapeutic engineering to, um, 
to make a desired cell product and you know whether that's for cancer immunotherapy or autoimmune disease or you know for any variety of other approaches so you know hopefully I've convinced you of the the broad applicability and utility of being able to insert large pieces of DNA into a, a, a T cell um, now, ideally, though, when we think about, you know, in, in, in a perfect world, how, what, what is the nature of the DNA template that we can use, um, uh, again, to accelerate the development of these cellular therapies? And again, I just told you, you know, we'd like to be able to insert very large sequences. Um, that gives us much more control and power over the, the, um, the therapeutic function of those cells. Obviously, we'd like the cells to have high viability. We, you know, dosing patients with hundreds of millions, if not billions, of these uh, modified cells. So we'd like to, you know, have a lot of them at the start. Um, something that's, I think, growing in appreciation over the last year and a half or so is that we'd like these insertions uh, to be at a targeted site. Um, the the you know the hallmark the 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 um, the foundational technology in cellular in, uh, gene therapeutics viral infection of a in viral integration of a DNA template um, has has you know which has you know, led development of the field for the last thirty years is entirely based though on random integration of a target cassette. Uh, and I think, you know, especially with the growing power of these targetable nucleases, and now that it's possible to integrate DNA at a specific site, then there's a growing growing understanding and appreciation in the field for the types of applications that are enabled by integrating at a specific locus, as opposed to integrating randomly and just overexpressing off of a viral promoter some, some gene. And so it is a very fun time to be thinking about these types of applications. Um, but our techniques to insert our DNA should should essentially now be able to put DNA in at a targeted targetable site, and that's both from a quality con control um, and QC concerns um, for especially at the at the clinical manufacturing for cells that are going into patients, and also from the engineering side that you know this enables more complex and more powerful engineering approaches. Um, but uh, another few things that you might want to be able to, you know, target specifically with very low off-target effects, and obviously off-target effects of the guide RNA cutting are present in these systems as well, and there's a large appreciation for those, but there's been much less work done on the potential off-target effects of these newer types of, of targetable DNA integrations, although from a general conceptual standpoint, um, these techniques are replacing random integrations of, of viral vectors, which of course have no specificity for a target site. So, you know, at least from the, all of the patients that have been dosed with um, lentiviral or gamma retroviral based modifications of T cells, and of course, you know, uh, um, at least the experience of the field so far, so there has not been a uh, you know any reported cases of a T cell based um, oncogenic transformation based on those. So there's probably a little bit less concern about um, off-target integrations of DNA components. But just very quickly at the end, it'd be nice if this was easily multiplexable. Um, I can tell you, you know one thing I didn't add on here, but it's a huge concern for um, you know doing this in the lab and then eventually also in the clinic is how easy. Um, it is to create and generate um, your DNA templates. Viral templates take a lot longer than generating um, uh, a non-viral template, and that just means that you know it's much faster uh, to do this non-viral work. Um, 
And yeah, that's what the kind of the point is at the end that this should be a rapid process so that you know we're we're not going to find the best way to modify T cells by um, all sitting around and coming up with one construct that everybody's going to test. Um, these are a process of trial and error, and we're going to have to you know it, it's going to be a matter of testing hundreds, if not thousands, of of different constructs and finding the ones that have the therapeutic properties that uh, that are most applicable to a given. Uh, a therapeutic or research setting and you know the faster that we can insert and test constructs the faster we're going to work through all of those ideas and find the ones that are that are best suited so um so these are you know these are all things to keep in mind when thinking about and this isn't to say that there's any one mat spec uh, the best way uh to do these but um, individual applications will always have different considerations so when we uh um a few of the type the types of DNA templates that are that are I think currently available or you know current options um, one that you know we had previously published on our lab a couple years ago is using a short single-stranded piece of DNA this is uh, um, can be chemically synthesized just like a, a DNA primer is synthesized um, and it can be you know shipped to you in a week now the issue is that because we have to include homology arms um, to target the integration of whatever new piece of DNA that you want, the the, the limitations of DNA synthesis end up being about uh, 200 base pairs. And so that means that um, you essentially, if you're including homology arms that are about 80 base pairs long, there's only a very small amount of DNA that you can insert. This is perfectly, uh, this is uh, certainly more than enough for um, uh, mutation correction applications, uh, but for larger scale uh, engineering, we'd really like we really like to be able to insert much larger pieces of DNA. And the three ways that I think there are uh, to do that include a, a much longer piece of single-stranded DNA um, using a viral genome. Again, integrase-deficient uh, adeno-associated viruses are the most commonly used one, uh, but integrase-deficient lentiviruses uh, or adenoviruses have also been. Uh, used uh, in in published studies, um, or also um, or finally um, a a piece of double just a piece of non-viral double-stranded DNA can also serve as an endpoint. And these three uh, all have the capacity to insert much larger pieces of DNA. And now, when you can insert a much larger piece of DNA, that actually makes the experiments a little bit easier because it makes the readout of whether a cell got a targeted insertion much a little bit simpler. Um, so here's the design of just kind of a a, a standard. Uh, um, homology-directed repair template, they include a, a, a gene payload, whatever the new piece of DNA that you want to put in. In this case, it's just a GFP fusion tag. Um, and then on either side, a homology arm perfectly homologous to the uh, DNA sequences around a given cut site uh, for a guide RNA. So in this case, we have a guide RNA cutting at the RAB11A locus. It's just a um, highly expressed housekeeping gene. And the guide RNA comes in, it cuts right there. Um, the cell notices that there's DNA damage at that site. It can repair that damage via one of two pathways, either non-homologous end joining, just slapping those two exposed ends back together and re-ligating it, which is sometimes an error-prone process, which leads to the frame shift mutations and subsequently protein knockouts that so many of us now use as a mainstay manipulation um, for research purposes. Um, but there is a second uh, 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 
a second repair pathway known as homology directed repair, which is when a cell, uh, as long as the cell is going through cell cycle, um, the cell has a, a chance to use the other chromosome, especially when the, the chromosomes are lined up, uh, um, at, again, as the cell go, uh, progresses through cell cycle. It can use the other chromosome, which is homologous in the regions around where that double-stranded break is, to do a much less lossy DNA repair process, um, whereby the other chromosome is templated off of to repair that uh, that strand, and then through a lot of complex crossing over, then you end up with a, a, a uh, perfectly repaired strand. Now, if you confuse the cell and you have an HDR template that has these long homology arms, the cell thinks that it's crossing over onto its other chromosome, but it's actually onto your template. And you can insert, and if there's any new DNA in the middle, the cell is none the wiser, and it just integrates that DNA at your target site. The, the, the big, huge advantage of this is that it gives you total sequence control over what the final genomic sequence is, which now, which again is a lot of fun both in the lab and for imagining therapeutic processes um, because you have so much uh, um, power over what the cell's genome now is. Um, and then you can use that to re-engineer um, the functionality of those cells. So um, we went through a, a, a fairly extensive process to optimize um, these using a non-viral DNA template. Um, and electroporation um, in, in primary human T cells. Um, you know, I can tell you it was a lot of 96 well plates testing out conditions and you know, some things that, uh, well, uh, these four primary areas of optimization. Um, and we essentially we just looked to see, you know, are cells getting a GFP integrated and then how viable are the cells? Because it doesn't matter if you have perfect efficiency, 100% of one cell is not a viable therapeutic strategy. But of course, if you have uh, um, perfect viability but have very low or no editing of those cells, that's also not a um, useful therapeutic strategy. So there's a balance between these two. Um, so looking at this control locus here, um, and you know, one of the uh, nicer donors that we've uh, looked at, that, that this site you, integration of GFP went well over 50% in this donor. Uh, I can say that the our, our average at um, at some of these housekeeping genes where we just knock in GFP, usually it, across donors ranges from 30 to 40 percent, at least with our current iteration of the protocol. Um, so uh, if we can target this at one side, I told you that you know non-viral templates. The one of the real uh, advantages is that it's very easy to make new templates and target them, you know, across the genome. So looking here at six different um, housekeeping genes or um, or T cell specific or highly expressed genes, um, we chose these six: um, RAV11A, but some other ones that you might recognize: uh, the CD4 co-receptor, clathrin, act beta actin, FBL, which is a nucleolar marker, or beta tubulin. Um, we chose these because they have hallmark cellular uh, um, localizations. And so as a, as a control to make sure that this, these GFP positive cells that we're seeing um, and that we're robustly generating actually have the integration at the targeted locus, we designed GFP fusion templates for each of these genes. And then by just, uh, um, by just uh, doing some simple confocal microscopy to look to see where does the GFP go in these cells, all of these six images are taken from live primary human T cells that now have a, a GFP conjugated to their um, to these uh, individual genes that have different hallmark cellular localizations. So you can see here we've, we're labeling clathrin microvest 
vesicles act in microfilaments, especially all the microvilli that are um, highly active and present on the surface of T cells. Um, the nucleolus, uh, um, the microtubule organizing center on the far right. Um, this gave us you know, a high confidence that these integrations are going at the desired target site because there's no way that a GFP that's randomly expressing is going to specifically enrich at each of these things, uh, different loci. So, uh, so that gives a pretty high confidence. Um, and again, going across these, these different targets um, that both we are integrating at, um, at our desired loci at, 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 at very robust efficiencies and that these knock-ins are, are specific. So exploring this, uh, the kind of the power of these uh, knock-ins just a little bit, um, at, by knocking in at these these individual sites, and maybe you noticed um, from the uh, um, from the flow plots here, these these different genes have different levels of expression of, this, of GFP. Um, the easiest one to look at is that beta tubulin, which is for in the top ten most expressed genes in T cells and also in most cells. Um, we can see that this GFP expression level is quite a bit higher than some of these other other genes. Um, so if we you know, go in and look at, look at this across donors, we can see that in regulatory control and regulatory circuits for these endogenous loci are are maintained and can be taken advantage of um, when you knock in a specific target gene. Um, and just a quick you know uh, example. Uh, you know, demonstration of that is that across six donors, uh, the beta tubulin is always by far the most highly expressed. And then actually all, all of these different genes um, end up across these donors being expressed at just about the same amount in each donor um, and that, you know, in, uh, across these different template sites. And so that, that gives, uh, again, a, a, a lot of confidence that we're both integrating at the target site. And also that tar targeting uh, integration to a specific site enables uh, um, a lot of exciting uh, thoughts about how to take advantage of endogenous regulatory control um, for uh, given applications. Um, so if we can knock one thing in, you know, obviously a, a, a quick question is, can you go in and knock more than one thing uh, in at a time? And again, one of the advantages of non-viral uh, uh, DNA templates is that we can make up these new different templates very quickly. So on the left, we have an example of multiplex knock-in, putting a GFP at um, the clathrin locus and putting an M-cherry in at the RAB11A uh, locus. And what we can see is a robust uh, dual positive population that's actually enriched over what you would expect by random chance um, uh, if, if these two processes were um, independent. And you know, we, we have a lot more extensions of this stuff in the, uh, our, our recent publication. So I definitely uh, recommend you check out the supplementary figures there because I love to know that somebody looked at them and we spent a lot of time making them so um but anyway the uh, beyond multiplexing at multiple uh, allelic sites we also can show that you can uh put by putting in two different um detectable uh dna sequences um at a single genomic site then you can detect biallelic modifications as well. So now putting a GFP and an M-cherry into the RAB11A locus, then we can sort out, a, again, a, 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 a very robust uh, dual positive uh, population that now you could potentially, if, if for research or therapeutic purposes, needed to have biallelic modifications, now you can actually sort out for those, those cells. Um, the, the percentage of biallelic modification is going to be higher. It's going to be roughly double that because you'll also have cells that have two GFPs integrated and two M cherries integrated, but that's not something that you can uh, detect or sort on. So, um, 
so kind of summarizing the the the, the technical the you know the the uh, discussions of the technical side of our work uh, I think you know, this is a, a pipeline that we're calling non-viral gene targeting that is rapid, efficient, and is very adaptable. It's very easy to move from one target site to another. Um, the RNP uh, formation is just a quick incubation. Getting the Cas9 and the guide RNA, those are, can each be easily purchased commercially, shipped to you in a week. Um, on the human T cell side, uh, isolating cells from a healthy donor or or soon um, from patients, uh, they just have to be uh, isolated and stimulated using very similar uh, um, stimulation and culture protocols as uh, viral as as current um, lentiviral and uh, retroviral uh, T cell modification protocols. So that's that's a fairly uh, well uh, known uh, uh, technical side. And then finally, the DNA template. At least the, all of the stuff that I've shown you so far has been with a linear double-stranded DNA template. And so these, these are usually sequences that, that we have to clone together. I mean, we need to add on the homology arms and uh, whatever we want that functional insert to be. But that cloning process is very straightforward and simple. And you can buy um, uh, uh, large pieces of double-stranded DNA for cloning applications pretty cheaply now. Um, and so you make that, uh, uh, making the HDR template can be as simple as doing some large PCRs and purifying it, uh, that DNA down. And then the electroporation is, is an exceptionally simple DNA delivery technique. You just mix all three of these components together, press a button, it shoots, and uh, then now you have T cells that you can expand and phenotype. So, uh, um, you know, this is kind of the, uh, the technical uh, uh, pipeline that we've developed. Now, uh, I'll show you two, tell you two quick stories about, you know, how we're applying this um, currently, and then uh, move into a, a, a more general discussion about different DNA template types and how, what the advantages and drawbacks of some of them might be. So, um, one, one application that we've used this for is actually, you know, I said that kind of using these short single-stranded DNA uh, donors or SSODNs allows you to correct mutations. So, and you know, that's not great if what you want to do is insert a, a, a car into a T cell uh, because you need, you know, 1.7, 1.8 um, KB of DNA inserted. But if your application is correcting a single base pair at a targeted site in the, new, in the genome, then an SSODN is actually quite uh, straightforward and easy to use. So um, this is, you know, not to get too much into the biology of this, but there's a, there's a, a family uh, where the um, three of the children in the family have uh, a two different mutations or compound heterozygotes for loss of function mutations in the IL-2 receptor alpha or CD25, the high affinity IL-2 receptor. IL-2 is critically important for regulatory T cell function. These patients have regulatory T cells, but they are largely non-functional. And so, and also, and if we look on the surface of their of their bulk T cell population, we see that there's no there's little little to no CD25 expression. Uh, we hypothesize that correcting the causative one of these causative mutations in the patient's regulatory T cells may be a targeted um, a you know personalized ther cellular therapy for these patients' pleiotropic autoimmune diseases. Um, you know, designing these is straightforward. The, the, um, the patients have a, a mutation at G2NA. We come in uh, with a HDR template. This can be either be a large one with long homology arms or a short SSODN with much 
shorter homology arms. We, the HDR template contains the correct DNA sequence, and then it has another uh, silent mutation to, pre to prevent uh, rebinding and recutting by the guide RNA by removing the PAM specificity. Um, and then, you know, if a HDR occurs, we have integration of the, the new targeted, uh, um, the correct uh, sequence that then uh, corrects the function. And you notice there's a TAG uh, created here. So there's an early stop codon uh, for these, these patients. And then we correct that back and re reestablish the normal uh, reading frame. So uh, when we actually go in and look this and use this protocol, we can see that in these patients' T cells and also in their regulatory T cells, if you, again, if you, you dig through the paper, um, we can actually correct uh, expression of CD25 on these patients' cells uh, at a fairly high degree. And so now we're pursuing this as a personalized cell therapy using a non-viral template in these patients' regulatory T cells. Um, a much something that would re requires much larger uh, uh, modification, though, is going in and actually uh, um, modifying a much larger piece of uh, uh, inserting a much larger piece of DNA to do protein scale engineering. Um, you know, the 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 first protein that comes to mind when you think about T cells is the T cell receptor, the uh, receptor that gives it, it gives it its specificity for a variety of of uh, pathogens or other antigens. Um, what we'd like to do is, um, as opposed to current techniques to insert in a new either chimeric antigen receptor or synthetic TCR randomly in the genome, we'd like to be able to go in and actually replace just the endogenous receptor. And actually in this case, we don't even need to replace the entire endogenous receptor, we just need to replace the extracellular portion, which confers specificity. Um, this both allows you to use smaller construct sizes, but it also takes advantage of the uh, endogenous regulatory control of the T cell receptor. And both in our, uh, our recent publication showing um, non-viral T cell receptor replacement, and also uh, a publication from Equim et al. from Michelle Satellin's group at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering in 2007 and or 2017 in Nature using a chimeric antigen receptor targeted to the endogenous T cell receptor locus, we've both found that there are potential advantages to targeting at the endogenous site over um, over viral overexpression, um, and so that's a whole that's worthy of a whole uh, another webinar. But um, we'll talk about you know uh, I'll, I'll show you kind of the construct design and the process for putting in a new specificity at a, at a synthetic receptor. So. Um, to do this, though, you know, T cell receptor is a um, um, multi-component complex, um, but the two that determine specificities, the TCR uh, beta and alpha loci, um, we target the the first exon of the constant uh, um, region of the TCR alpha locus. And you know, I'm sorry that this this genomic stuff gets a little bit complex, but you know, this is how you know the the T cells evolve, or how our you know the adaptive immune system evolved in order to have all these different specificities. So it's a wonderfully complex uh, uh, locus, but also means that it's challenging from an engineering perspective. But we've worked out a strategy that that, that works quite well um, by inserting at the, again, at this first exon of the constant locus, which allows you to target every single T cell in a polyclonal population. Uh, we insert a construct that has a multi-excision peptide followed by a full-length uh, TCR new TCR beta chain, a second multi-excision peptide, and then just the variable regions of the TCR alpha chain. So that now when this goes in, um, with when, in, when HDR actually occurs, now we see an expanded first exon that has both the entire beta chain 
as well as the new specificity of an alpha chain with these multi-excision peptides, which become important when we think about um, what happens with transcription and translation to form the final functional proteins. Upon transcription, the, the alpha exons splice in with their endogenous uh, additional exons to form the entire endogenous TCR alpha locus. Um, and then upon translation, these multi-excision peptides pop these different uh, um, components apart. And so the endogenous VJ, which again, you don't know what an individual cell's VJ region that it's gonna be expressing is, um, but that, that gets separated from the other uh, the, uh, um, transcripts by this multi-excision peptide. And now this does not include a transmembrane domain. This is now non-functional and most likely is going to be degraded. Um, and now you have two full functional translations, a new beta chain and a new alpha chain. And so now, you know, what the actual specificity that you knock in here is fairly um, uh, arbitrary because uh, the, the efficiency of the knock-in depends on the guide RNA and the homology arms. And you can just swap in whatever that specificity that you want to be is. So um, just showing you that we can do this here, standing on the x-axis um, for TCR expression and on the y-axis for tetramer staining for the specific TCR that we just knocked in. Uh, we can see that when we, when we put the DNA template in, but we don't, we include an off-target guide RNA, we don't see any TCR knockout and we don't see any knock-in of our desired TC, uh, new TCR. But when we include the non-target DNA or uh, guide RNA, which cuts at the TCR locus, uh, TCR alpha locus, we see that the majority of the cells are, are a knockout and that's this large population in the lower left, but we also see a fairly robust uh, population of knock-in cells with this uh, new TCR. And then, you know, this population is easily sortable or selectable um, and now can be used in a variety of downstream functional applications. Uh, and the, these, these applications aren't necessarily the point. Again, you go, go into much greater detail about the functionality of these cells uh, in our recent publication. But just to show you that, you know, these cells kill with uh, essentially the same kinetics as, um, as virally delivered, um, the, the same TCR uh, virally delivered. So this is just a simple killing assay with a target cell line that expresses both the right MHC allele um, as well as the, the right target antigen. In this case, the melanoma um, cancer antigen NYESO1. So, you know, I, I told you these two, vin you know, these two vignettes about how um, some of the first ways that we're going in and applying these, uh, uh, the ability to knock DNA in at a specific target site. Um, but looping back again around at the end to, you know, what is the nature of the DNA template and, and how might different types of templates be right for different applications? Um, again, uh, short single-stranded DNA or SSODNs is, you know, the simplest, uh, um, because you can, you know, just put plug in a sequence to any of a variety of, of DNA oligo providers, and they'll ship that to you next week. The limitation is that the size of the knock-in is very is much lower. So these larger, these other types of of, of templates, either long single-stranded DNA, um, uh, double-stranded DNA, or a viral genome, again primarily being uh, adeno-associated viruses, these all allow you to integrate much larger DNA. But there's a variety of other considerations as well um, that you can think about for choosing a DNA template type. So one of these is that is off-target integrations. And this is something that has not been necessarily looked at uh, that much. Um, but if you look in both um, viral uh, um, 
So some of the papers have been published with a viral, viral delivery or targeted viral delivery. Even though you're using an integrase deficient virus, you know, if you, you can study the flow plots, there is definitely off-target integration of these, of these DNA templates. And the question is, well, is, is that off-target integration of DNA templates both interfering with um, your conclusions from the template? Or, and also, is it, uh, is it uh, potentially a therapeutic concern? And I, I think that um, considering the fact that now thousands of patients have been dosed with viral, with uh, lentiviral or retroviral delivered DNA templates um, in therapeutic uh, 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 trials, for both for CAR T cells and a variety of others, um, without uh, any reported cases of oncogenic transformations, um, we have to compare it against that with, with these targeted integrations or the potential off-targets when using these targeted uh, DNA templates with the fact that you know every clinical application so far doesn't even have the concept of a targeted or of an on-target versus off-target integration because they all integrated off-target sites. They random, they're random integrations. So that, that says that it's probably not a big concern. But uh, you know, the, you know that that's something that definitely needs a lot more work uh, to be to be conclusively determined um, before these new targeted integration uh, uh, methodologies are are used in the clinic. But here, looking at this is using a double-stranded DNA template, uh, a matrix of six different templates, and then plugging in those against six different guides, and then what in one control guide and then no guide, we see that essentially by far the highest GFP expression comes when using the correct guide. But, you know, if you, you, if you have a good uh, discernment for shades of blue, you can see that there is a few, little bit of off-target integration for some of these combinations of an off-target guide in a, uh, in a DNA template that is not targeted to its specific locus. Um, looking at this in just one, at one case, again, we only see in efficient integration of GFP when we use a, a DNA template with the on-target guide RNA. But when we electrophrate either the DNA template by itself with a scrambled RNA that doesn't guide RNA that doesn't cut anywhere, or especially with an off-target guide RNA that cuts somewhere else in the genome, you can start to see a population, uh, an observable population of GFP-positive cells. And this is by no means every single cell that might have gotten a, a, a DNA integration. But the fact that this that there is a population that is observable means that we can now do experiments around that to try to minimize the the off-target events and see if any of these different DNA template types are better or worse for in, in that regard. And so just to show a little bit of data, um, again, this is with double-stranded DNA template. We can see a, a small amount of, of off-target integrations when we use a guide RNA that efficiently cuts somewhere else in the genome. Um, again, the DNA template by itself has much, much lower integration, but um, Comparing, comparing this with a long single-stranded DNA template, we actually see a quite noticeable, reproducible, and fairly large reduction in this observable off-target uh, uh, DNA integrations using a single-stranded DNA template. Um, you know, again, uh, um, summarizing data across quite a few donors, um, we see that on-target insertion efficiencies, whether using a double-stranded or single-stranded DNA template, are quite comparable, but that when doing a variety of off-target assays, using an off-target guide RNA, or just delivering the DNA template by itself on the left, um, we can see that the single, long single-stranded DNA templates can actually reduce uh, the observed off-target integrations. Um, so, uh, um, 
looking at the, these off-target integration profiles, these long single-stranded DNA actually um, uh, is potentially you know ideal in that regard. But again, there's still a lot of testing to be to, to be done to see whether that's actually a, a, a concern or not, both re on the research side and therapeutically. Um, but both viral delivery and uh, double-stranded DNA have the issue of off-target integration. Uh, you know, have observable off-target integrations and. Uh, again, compared to uh, lentiviruses, where every integration is an off-target integration, then these are certainly much better. But uh, again, you know, we're we're trying to, uh, uh, to to differentiate between the different types of DNA templates. So there's uh, um, the issue with long-standing single-stranded DNA is is essentially entirely in the production of it. It's quite difficult to to make large amounts of long single-stranded DNA, um, especially at the very very high concentrations necessary for these electroporation approaches. We've we've now published two different uh, approaches to making uh, this long-stranded single-stranded DNA. On the left, um, there's an IVT or in vitro transcription followed by reverse transcription based. Uh, um, approach uh, developed by Manu Leonetti, a um, a fellow at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub here in San Francisco, um, which uses first an in vitro transcription to make a single-stranded RNA template off of a desired DNA HDR template, followed by reverse transcription to make a single-stranded DNA single-stranded RNA hybrid, which can then the RNA can be selectively degraded, and now you have single-stranded DNA. The other approach is to use um, um, uh, selective end modifications. Um, on a double-stranded DNA template. In this case, this is using a um, an exonuclease that is specific for a, a five-prime phosphate to then uh, uh, degrade one uh, um, one uh, selectively degrade one strand. I can say both of these can be done, um, you know, hands-on yourself in the lab. Uh, but you know, as someone who's done this a lot, they are fairly time-consuming and a little bit laborious, and the enzymes can be a little expensive. Um, so the uh, so you know the 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 big issue with the these single stranded DNA is, is in the ease of production. Um, fortunately, though, there's now um, you know uh, um, a, a couple of different companies have have recognized that this is a a bottleneck um, in uh, in some of these engineering uh, these cell therapy and engineering applications. And now there are commercially available long single stranded DNA constructs or uh, uh, products available at the very, very high concentrations necessary um, to uh, to insert them. And I can say that uh, um, we've used one, uh, the, the sponsor of this webinar, GenScript, has a new product. Um, they're not the only company that does this. I know um, IDT and at least one or two other companies also make long single-stranded DNA templates, uh, but we've specifically used the GenScript uh, product before. And you know it worked worked quite well in our hands. So very um, uh, essentially comparable to the um, the single stranded DNA that we we were formerly making in house. So you're, it, it is now possible to purchase the, the, the this type of template as well. Um, but uh, viral genomes, they, you know, they're they're a little bit harder to produce because you have to make a virus. Um, the easiest things are either the short single stranded DNA, which you can current just buy today, um, or uh, double stranded DNA, which is easy to make by PCR. Um, a variety of other uh, issues uh, with toxicity. We've noticed that single-stranded DNA has lower toxicity issues than um, either the vi viruses or, or double-stranded DNA. Um, and then also um, 
a, a you know, potential therapeutic advantage is uh, types of templates that do not have to go through a viral vector. Um, that has the uh, potential advantages uh, at a number of steps, but especially both in the simplicity and ease of production. Um, you know, there's, you know, it's producing viral vectors for therapeutic at GMP quality and for therapeutic use is such a huge issue that, you know, there's been New York Times articles about this. So, you know, these arcane production issues are such a, 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 a draw, a bottleneck for the field that it enters the popular press. And so that's certainly a good argument for why, um, for why alternative, easier uh, tech, um, uh, types of templates are, are needed uh, to move uh, these cell therapies forward. Um, and then it also gets to the final uh, question of, of, of if if your application is the actual um, end you know GMP uh, uh, production of, of cells, then the availability of these reagents at GMP quality is a crucial concern. Um, so I'll, uh, I'll leave you with you know this non-viral gene targeting is a rapid, um, highly adaptable, uh, and simple protocol for integrating um, large pieces of DNA at specific target sites in the genome of primary human T cells. And this is a, uh, a technique that we think is is going to be central to accelerating the the design, testing, and construction, um, both on the research and side and therapeutic side of gene modified um, um, T cells for cancer immunotherapies and hopefully a variety of other applications as well. So um, I, I will quickly acknowledge uh, uh, some of the, the people that helped us out. You know, we're working with a large number of groups, but especially, you know, um, everybody in the Marsden lab and uh, a few key collaborators, Manu Leonetti at the Chan Zuckerberg Biohub, Jennifer Doudna at the Innovative Genomic Institutes in UC Berkeley, uh, a variety of clinical collaborators on the CD25 story, and especially Tony Rebos and Christina Sauspuig at uh, UCLA, who've worked with us on the TCR replacement uh, application. Um, and, and also, of course, the sponsors of this uh, webinar, uh, GenScript and Bite Size Bio. Um, so with that, um, I, uh, um, that's the end of my slide. I think uh, GenScript has um, a few slides that they'll present as well. Um, but if you have questions on gene editing or any of the, the, the techniques or methodologies that I discussed, please feel free to reach out. My email's at the bottom. You can, um, there's a lot more detail in our recent publication um, and you know, happy to um, field questions um, uh, uh, from you guys now or by email uh, in the future. Great, Theo. Thanks so much for that presentation. That was really, really interesting, and I'm super excited to get into these questions. Um, but like you said, before we do get audience, to audience questions, um, which, as I had mentioned at the beginning, if anybody does have any questions, you can go ahead and write them in the questions box to the right of your screen, and we will get to them in just a second. So we do have a few messages from our sponsor. Um, if you could advance, Theo. Uh, GenScript aims to make genome editing easy for you. GenScript provides basic CRISPR reagents such as gRNA Cas9 plasmids and the RNP system. Our gRNA Cas9 plasmids are pre-validated by the Broad Institute of MIT and Harvard, and we provide both the dual vector and all-in-one vector system for sgRNA expression. In addition, we also have SAM constructs for transcription activation. 
For the RNP system, we provide fully customizable synthetic G sgRNAs, unmodified or modified, as well as synthetic custom cRNAs and tracer RNAs. We also provide SP-Cas9 nucleus with two NLS for optimized nuclear compartmentalization and Cas9 protein with one NLS and an EGFP marker allowing for fluorescence activation cell sorting. Many studies, including the studies that Theo just presented here, demonstrate that single-stranded DNA are the best form of HDR, excuse me, HDR DNA donor templates for CRISPR-based gene insertion. GeneScript is proud to announce that we are also offering uh, single-stranded DNAs that are up to 8,000 nucleotides long in length to serve as HDR DNA donor templates by using our proprietary harsh chemical-free enzymatic approach for producing single-stranded DNAs, we are able to offer high-quality, sequence-verified, single-stranded DNAs that are up to 8,000 bases long in length. We also offer single-stranded DNAs with up to 40 micrograms delivery quantity, allowing for flexible study design. For more information, please visit our website listed here. Slide. We also provide various technical resources that can help make your research easy. For example, you can check out our new CRISPR RNP user manual or our comprehensive CRISPR handbook for free. Slide. Finally, we have a great 2018 fall webinar series lined up with seven fantastic topics. The first webinar shown for excuse me, the first four webinars shown here, which include the one you just attended, can be found on our website for on-demand viewing. Registration is still open for the last three, which can be found at www.genscrap.com forward slash webinars. We hope you find these resources helpful and a great success and have great success with your research. Uh, so we do actually have a few questions from the audience. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and pose these to you, Theo. And again, if anybody continues to have questions as we're speaking, please feel free to put them into the questions box to the right of your screen. So first one is, in your paper, did you use single-stranded DNA or double-stranded DNA for integration into TRAC? Yeah. So in the in our published paper, um, you know, you can dig through the legends to, um, for each individual experiment. Um, but the TCR integrations that we did were using double-stranded DNA. Okay. Um, double-stranded DNA has the the advantage that it's very rapid to produce and easy. Mm -hmm. um, we have now we have done the PCR integrations um, with using single-stranded DNA. Um, actually, using the GenScript's uh, single-stranded DNA product. Um, and we see very comparable uh, integration efficiencies. Okay, great. Um, this that was a question from Justin, and they also say awesome paper, by the way. Uh, <laughs> so I actually have a question for you. Um, in your uh, your your clinical study, where you were looking at the um, the mutation for IL two uh, receptor alpha chain. Mm -hmm. Um, do you know, or are you guys planning on looking at how long that mutation correction actually lasts, like doing longitudinal yeah. studies? Yeah, well, that's certainly going to be a, a focus of the, the clinical trial that we're currently putting together uh, for those patients. The uh, um, any, Anytime when you're editing in a, a, a non-permanent cell type, of which T cells are mm -hmm. can be very, very long-lived, but they're certainly not uh, they're not the equivalent of hematopoietic stem cells, which right. you would expect to be a lifelong uh, cellular therapy. We have the question of how long is our therapeutic product going to be present in the patient. Mm -hmm. I can say from from 
regulatory T-cell-based clinical trials that have been pioneered here at UCSF uh, through Jeff Bluestone's group in the past uh, five or six years for type 1 diabetes. They find that they found that uh, adoptive transfer of regulatory T-cells, uh, uh, adoptively transferred regulatory T-cells can persist in a patient for well over a year. Mm -hmm. um, and actually, essentially, it's been as long as they've looked. Um, so we're, we're cautiously optimistic that both the, that some of the corrected C cells will be long lived, and also that the um, the ones that are long lived will be the ones that are binding or that are recognizing autoantigens, and may very well be uh, the most important ones to have around for a long uh, period of time. Yeah. Uh, but of course, it's something that uh, it will be a, a key part of the clinical study. Absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, can get a little little touchy with putting all those cells back in the patient for sure. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, one question I also uh, we also have is, um, this is from Takuya, what is the maximum length you have succeeded in insertion? What's the maximum yeah. insertion length you've gotten? So uh, you know, we, we've tried larger and larger templates. I, I can say that, um, you know, uh, without going too much into the details, but uh, we've done, we've now inserted things that are a good degree longer, uh, many KB. Um, what we find is that uh, uh, as you increase the size of the DNA template, that the efficiency does start to go down a little bit. Um, and this also, this might be something that's a little bit different with uh, viral DNA templates because larger integrations using um, integrase efficient viral templates appear to be um, of, of, of similar efficiency as smaller ones. We think that this is a, uh, a, a mass versus, mol um, versus molarity issue. As you increase the, uh, the amount of DNA that you can in, 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 uh, deliver into a cells mm -hmm. is, depend is, is limited by DNA mass uh, that we find. Um, the efficiency of integration is dependent on the molarity of DNA. You know, sure. more copies mm -hmm. of DNA, the higher efficiency is. Right. So as you get to larger and larger templates, you for the same amount of mass, you have fewer moles. And so we find that the efficiency goes starts to uh, decrease a little bit. Yeah, no, that makes sense. All right. Um, one more question is, with your when you had your insertions, um, when you were looking, or sorry, when you were looking at making um, your TCR, you had mm -hmm. included both P2A and T2A. What was the difference? Yes. Um, so yeah, that, the the. Why did you put them where you put them? I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So uh, I hope I understand the question correctly, and please, you know, uh, yeah. just ask again if 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 I am not getting at the specific point, mm -hmm. but. Um, these 2A sequences are one of many um, little uh, tricks that viruses have, wonderful little tricks that viruses have evolved um, in order to set to, you know, have very, very compact genomes. Mm -hmm. um, we take advantage of these um, because we're, we're, you know, we have the, essentially the same problem. We have a very small, um, you know, we have limited real estate in the DNA sequence that we can integrate. So we want to pack as much stuff as we can to get the desired functionality in as little DNA sequence as possible. Uh, 2A sites or are, are, are also um, like multi or like multi-cystronic sites mm -hmm. or um, uh, um, um, self-excision peptides um, are a, a short uh, sequence, about 20 amino acids long, that when the ribosome runs over that, uh, when the ribosome um, uh, translates those 20 amino acids, uh, it actually causes a break in the polypeptide chain 
which then allows you to have multiple separate uh, um, assistrons or protein products off of a single promoter. Mm-hmm. Um, in the using different, uh, if you have, you know, so you have one two A site can give you two different uh, poly, uh, polypeptides or proteins. Mm-hmm. Um, if you have two, if you have multiple two A sites, now you can get up to a, you know any arbitrary number. Um, the there there's a variety of you know a variety of different versions of this sequence isolated from different viruses. Um, P two A, T two A, F two A, E two A. There's a whole bunch of other ones as well. Um, using the different sequences, though, um, there's there's no necessity mm-hmm. to have different sequences. But when you're cloning a DNA construct, it's it's uh, it's it's not desirable to have highly homologous sequences at multiple points sure. in the sequence of DNA. So you can use multiple different sequences to make your cloning easier, and they all they all uh, function about the same. Gotcha. All right, good to know. Um, and then as of right now, so the last question is, what is the cost of double-stranded DNA versus single-stranded? Yeah, so that's one of that's one of the advantages of double str- using double stranded DNA is that it's faster um, to make and uh, and cheaper to produce than the single stranded DNA is, um, and a little bit easier to produce at very high quantities, um, at least right now. Um, yeah. So uh, making double stranded DNA is is as simple as doing a lot of PCRs. Um, so you know, I mean, you got you got to pay you got to pay for you know a high fidelity PCR enzyme, sure. and you have to pay pay for whatever the DNA purification methodology that you're going to use is. We're a big fan of of magnetic bead based uh, DNA purifications, oh, yeah. dry purifications. Um, but uh, those two together actually make double stranded DNA quite uh, inexpensive. Yeah. Um, Single-stranded DNA, um, because it requires enzymes that are not produced at such high, that at such high volumes, um, is currently uh, more expensive. But again, as we discussed, there are unique advantages to that to it as well, though. Perfect. Yeah. Well, thank you again for giving this really really interesting webinar. I'm really excited to see how things progress. It seems like it's going to be a very um, very useful tool for all sorts of diseases, cancer, viral-based, HIV, all of it. So well, we certainly hope so. Oh, wait, there's um, a couple more questions that just came in. Sorry. Great. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Um, how much troubleshooting, Darren wants to know, how much troubleshooting went into choosing 300 base pair HAs? Yeah, we did a uh, um, we did a little bit of, of optimization around that. Um, we found that 300 base pairs was a great compromise between efficiency, uh, um, efficient again that mass versus molarity effect. Mm-hmm. Um, as the homology arms get longer, you know you can it, you for the same amount of mass you get fewer and fewer copies of the DNA template. Right. And so um, you know, don't necessarily have uh, um, conclusive data on some of these things but um our you know the trade-off that we ended up with uh um, settling on about 300 base pairs was that 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 kept the 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 size of the constructs um down a little bit more as opposed to using 1kb or 2kb homology arms which are common when using um like plasmid donors um for like uh mouse zygote uh, applications Mm -hmm. um um but also, uh, the, the, those longer homology arms were much more efficient than using the shorter, like 60 or 80 base pair homology arms, which is the max that you can get away with for the SSODNs. Gotcha. Okay. Um, and how much RNA, sorry, RNP slash template DNA were used to perform electroporations of 100 million T cells? 
Yeah. So, um, well, so the numbers that I know off the top of my head are are based for our standard electroporation, which is just one million T cells. Um, so, you know, we've we've got all this stuff in the method in our methods section. Right. Uh, on your paper. Our paper, so you can dig in if if you want to get uh, a real nitty gritty. Nitty gritty. Um, but uh, for one, for a standard uh, one million T cell electroporation, which we use um, uh, the Lons uh, um, 4D system, okay. um, which has a 20 microliter electroporation volume. Uh, so we have a million T cells in that. And then we usually electroporate um, uh, uh, about 50 picomoles, okay. uh, picomoles of, of RNP mm-hmm. in that. That's re- usually concentrated such that that takes up about 2.5 microliters of volume, and then uh, into that we electroporate about one microliter of a DNA template, which is uh, uh, depending on the template, usually between one, two, three, or four uh, micrograms per microliter, um, and so and that's definitely something that um, uh, you can optimize for a given template is the total amount of DNA to electroporate. Um, but so it's about you know uh, uh, it's it's on the microgram microgram scale for mm-hmm. DNA templates, and then about 50 picomoles of RNP um, uh, on the RNP side. All right, cool. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, Justin asks, uh, so it's a, it's not a two part, but it's a question and then an explanation. So they ask, did you sequence your T cell TRAC locus before designing? your HAs, I ask because the reference sequence that I find differs from your published HAs. Um, yeah, so we, we pulled uh, the, the sequences from, uh, um, uh, well, so, well, so, so there's two things. We pulled the sequence from the uh, published human genome, um, uh, like HG38 build. Um, the um, we there are you know one or two um, um, silent mutations integrated in there to abrogate uh, guide RNA binding sites, mm-hmm. um, so that so that will cause slight differences. But you know we've certainly found and others have found that um, that a, a small number of mutations within a homology arm does not affect um, the in, the integration efficiency. Hmm. Um, so uh, um, you know beyond beyond that uh, uh, you know. If uh, you know, during all the, the cloning steps and stuff, we validate the sequences and things uh, to make sure that it was it was as we originally designed, but there were some uh, um, uh, small differences um, uh, that were inserted at the at the uh, inserted at the design stage. Sure. And you know, there is a more subtle uh, discussion that I didn't talk about today, but we've been able to insert uh, new DNA at both the TCR alpha locus as well as uh, do an analogous construct at the TCR beta locus as well, oh. or even to, to multiplex this where you replace just the alpha locus at TCR alpha and just the beta locus at TCR beta. Uh-huh. Um, TCR beta gets a little bit more complex because there's two version, there's two copies of the constant domain. Right. And so essentially we had to choose one of those two copies to serve as our, um, uh, as our uh, homology arms. And so um, there, there is a, a, for those TCR beta constructs, um, they are uh, specific. They are uh, the DNA sequence matches. Uh, I, I forget which one off the top of my head, but TRBC one or two. Um, and but we actually found that that sequence works for both of them. So. Oh, wow, that's really interesting. Very cool. Uh, Justin says thank you. He understands. <laughs> or they understand. Um, 
Great. Well, thanks again, Lee. <laughs> thanks again, Theo, um, for answering everybody's questions and giving such an illuminating presentation. We really appreciate it. And thanks also to our sponsor, GenScript. Finally, thanks to everybody who attended and took the time to ask questions and listen in. If you've enjoyed this seminar and would like to view some other video recordings of the session, you can visit, or if you would like to look at this again, my apologies, you can go ahead and visit our webinars page at bitesizebio.com. It should be up in the next 24 hours. And you can also view some other webinars that we have lined up for you at Bite Size Bio, at least for the rest of the year. So until next time, good luck with all of your research and goodbye to all of us at GenScript and Bite Size Bio. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed the webinar. To view the full video version of this and all of our other webinars, please visit bitesizebio.com slash webinars. Finding the right mentor can make all the difference in your research journey. But what if you don't have one? Look no further than Mentors at Your Benchside, the podcast that offers curated advice from experienced researchers on lab skills, techniques, and career progression. With short, easy-to-access episodes, you can get the help you need to succeed in the lab. Visit bitesizebio.com forward slash podcasts or search for mentors at your bench site in your podcast app to subscribe and get help and advice from seasoned scientists. 